Maya Angelou said, every time I sit down to write a poem is the first time I sit down to write a poem <laughs> because you're beginning with something brand new that even though you know poetry, the subject matter is different or the emotion is different and you have to sort of process it. And every poem demands something a little bit different from you or a new discovery happens or you have to apply different forms of the craft. You know, you're not always going to go for the long pass, you know, <laughs> you don't play the same game twice. Welcome, Book Society Podcast. Here we are with Richard Blanco, occasional poet. He was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States. He was a consulting civil engineer, who knew, in Miami for many years, until he wrote his first book of poetry, The City of a Hundred Fires. That was in 1998, published by University of Pittsburgh Press. Then he took a position at Central College, Connecticut, teaching creative writing, where he met Dr. Marc Nouveau who is now his husband, who was for a long time his life partner and is still his life partner, but in small part because of you, anyone who wants to be a man and have a husband can have a husband in the United States. After his stint at Central Connecticut College, he traveled all over the world and was awarded a Beyond Margins Award from Pan America, then wrote Directions to the Beach of the Dead in 2005, and that was from the University of Arizona Press. In 2004, he thought, this poetry stuff is really fun, this is really great, but I'm just going to go back to Miami and become an engineer again. Then moved to Bethel, Maine. In 2012, Mr. Blanco, who was not yet then Dr. Blanco, I don't think, but soon would be, performed for a lot of people. I'm a composer. I do like a lot of jazz. I have some friends who do EDM, and they perform to 200,000 people. And we joke that their one concert is probably bigger than my lifetime attendance at any concert I've ever done. But Richard Blanco has performed for 1.1 million people. And if you're wondering, what do the names Amanda Gorman, Robert Frost, and Maya Angelou have in common, and what are they missing? They are missing Richard Blanco, because he was the 2012 inaugural poet for Barack Obama. There's an amazing picture of you reading a poem, and there are two U.S. presidents standing behind you. It is pretty incredible. I watched it on TV. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, there's really not much of a bigger deal gig for a poet than that. So that's pretty cool. After that, Woodrow Wilson, visiting fellow. He has honorary doctorates from Manchester College, Colby College, and the University of Rhode Island. And he is the co-author of the blog Bridges to Cuba, which you co-author with Ruth Behar, who was a guest about two weeks ago. So we are having all the important Cubans on this show. Welcome, Richard Blanco. I am really happy to have you. The book that you chose today is Rachel McGibbon's Blood, 2019 from Copper Canyon Press. It's a book of poetry. It's super cool. And my first question is, why did you pick this book? Well, many reasons. On the craft part of it, I think Rachel is just one of the most amazing metaphor makers or simile makers in the world. Her imagery just speaks in such powerful ways. You know, and that's at the heart of poetry, metaphor. And so sometimes you don't even read them. You just feel them because of this intense imagery. That's one thing. I also think it's an important book because it discusses a lot about mental health. And she's very candid about that. A lot about body image and also a lot about physical abuse, parental physical abuse. And so the topics are important. And yet they're handled in ways that feel empowering, not in some odd way, rather than speaking only about the victimization of such topics, while obviously not oversimplifying any of it, but really diving into the complexities of all those three major subject areas. 
when I was reading this, I thought about the poetry that I wrote when I was a teenager dressed in black with paper clips in my clothes. This is what I thought I sounded like. This is what I wanted to sound like. Some of these poems are painful to read, but they're also so beautiful. I feel like reading an entire book of poetry is almost like remembering the poet's life. The first one that I read for the show, that experience was pretty unpleasant, but also empowering. There are some things in here that it's amazing that she's able to find so much beauty in some of these ugly stories. Yeah, the empowerment, again, comes from that language. I teach this book in my creative writing classes. It is exactly what you said, like it's horrible and yet in some ways empowering. And I think part of that is it's a real tricky thing for a poet to do, but to take that stance where you have what I call a confident vulnerability. She's not afraid to be vulnerable on the page, but in a way through language that is very empowering. So she knows these stories need to be told, but the poems have processed them. So there's an out (laughs) of a story, even though, yeah, some of the poems are just left like, what? (laughs) But again, it's one of the hardest things to do in a poem when you're talking about subjects like this, because like you said, you tend to gravitate towards the high school poem and it's all about me, 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 and how horrible my life is. Rachel isn't saying that, but it's pushing through that. The more important part is how the language, how the imagery pushes through it. But yeah. Yeah, I felt like it was like a celebration of the woman she has managed to become despite her circumstances. And so I didn't get the impression that she was saying that her life was horrible, even though objectively some really terrible things happened to her. And for a sustained period of time, I guess what I was saying with the high school poetry is, I guess that kind of poetry to me is like therapy. You write it to process your own feelings and only if you master the craft are you able to develop that into something that's meaningful to someone else. That's part of the process of writing poems, right? Paying attention to the craft and to the art form through which you transcend in some ways the very urgency that brought you to the page. And that's sort of the difference between sort of journaling and your journal and I hate little Cindy Menendez or whatever, today she pulled my hair, to a poem that now says, okay, I'm going to make art out of my life. And in the process of the art making is where you get that transcendence. And in that way, it becomes more therapeutic than just getting your feelings up, so to speak. It's processing those feelings and the complexities and contradictions sometimes, which are relevant here how she can both love and hate someone that has abused her, right? That's real life. That's how it works. Processing all that is only possible because you're making art in some ways. Craft is something I think about a lot. As a film composer, a lot of my job is craft. I've just been preparing for a show, just getting ready for a new show that we're starting. And most of that preparation process is like troubleshooting computers which obviously is why I got into the music business in the first place, right? Is because I wanted to be figuring out how to get computers to network with each other. But until you do that, you really can't make art in my world. You really can't do anything until you get all that stuff working. Do you feel like it's the same in poetry? Is there a level of craft that you have to attain before you can be a professional poet or a, a poet that writes things that other people are going to get something out of? Poetry is like anything in life, really, if you really come to think about it. You have to start very slow. (laughs) You start with just an interest in something, right? Oh, I think I want to write poetry. That's how I started at 27. I had no idea how to write a poem. I had very little idea what poetry even was. But let's say you want to be an engineer, for example. (laughs) Well, you have to take 
Physics One, which is a weed out course. And slowly, even when you get on the job, you learn more and more and more. And at some point, you never stop learning. I mean, any poet will tell you that we don't know how to write a poem yet. <laughs> I mean, we know how to write a better poem, but we're still trying to write even better poems. So we're constantly challenging ourselves, but it's practice, it's process, it's all these things. Mario's using now is just like, a football player, you know, you have to get out there in the field and you have to practice, you have to do the drills, you have to run. And then you might have a great season. Does that mean you're going to have another great season? Of course not. If not, I'd be a rich man betting on games, right? Or we'd all be, right? But sometimes you'd mess up, but that messing up teaches you something new. And so I think there's a moment where you have a sense of what a poem is, but it's still not always, you know, 100%. Maya Angela said, every time I sit down to write a poem is the first time I sit down to write a poem <laughs> because you're beginning with something brand new that even though you know poetry, the subject matter is different or the emotion is different and you have to sort of process it. And every poem demands something a little bit different from you or a new discovery happens or you have to apply different forms of the craft. You know, you're not always going to go for the long pass. You know, <laughs> you don't play the same game twice. This is what I tell my students. The only thing I know for sure that you don't know right now is that I know when a poem is going really bad a lot sooner than you do. <laughs> <laughs> that is one thing you pretty much go like, this is sucking right now. I'm just going to keep on going till I get someplace else. And you have to get through the sucky part. Sometimes it's a month working on a poem. Sometimes it's two days. Sometimes it's two hours. It all depends on a poem. But it's the idea of craft. I use this analogy all the time. Craft is also process and practice. There's a difference between going to a party and having a couple shots of tequila and getting down on the dance floor. You might be a great dancer, right? And there's a difference between that and signing up to be a ballerina, right? <laughs> I mean, that means waking up at six in the morning to go to three or four hours of practice every day. So poetry is the same thing. Like anything in life, you want to be good at something, you got to fail and practice and succeed and fail again and learn and learn and learn. That's counterintuitive, I think, to people who don't do artistic things for a living. There is some benefit to us as artists to making the public think that there are geniuses who are just magically good at this and people who aren't. I will readily admit that it is good to have that perception sometimes, but it's a lie. It's not true. I find this to be most obvious in stand-up comedy because stand-up comedy seems like something that someone with a sense of humor could just do. Right? Like you're funny, you've made your friends laugh. It seems like you could just take a microphone and make a room full of people laugh. But if you've never tried it, I encourage you to try it. It's a humbling experience because <laughs> you're clearly a professional talker. You're clearly funny. You have a way with words. I've had the experience of trying to do that. And you just fall flat because it's a skill, it's an art, but it's also a skill that you just have to be good at. Speaking of getting up on a mic, Rachel McKibbins is also an amazing performer. She was a world champ of this and of that. I don't know how many times the whole spoken word slam a circuit. That's also part of a craft, which people don't always understand about poetry, is that for many thousands of years, its origins are all oral tradition. I mean, they were all stories and songs and chants and prayers and music. It's still there. And sometimes I always say, if you're having difficulty understanding a poem, just read it out loud to yourself. Something magical happens when you do that. Your poem becomes part of your body and a new kind of understanding starts happening. But she is an amazing performer as well, which not all poets are. Or I should say, we're not always 
taught or versed in that in our university programs about the importance of that, at least not when I was going to school. So the stand-up part of it is very important as well. I'm so glad you said that because one of the things that I felt in reading this book and also reading your book, How to Love a Country, was that I felt like you were reading it to me. And I don't always feel that way with books of poetry, even with books of poetry that I love. It just felt like it was written to be read aloud. And I had the exact same thought you just expressed, that only the last tenth of poetry's life has been on a page. It has existed as a human art form for thousands of years as a spoken word. And there's something visceral about hearing a poet read a poem and about hearing a poem out loud that I think you don't quite get on the page. But one of the things I love about contemporary poetry is the fun with pagination and the fun with just line breaks and where you put things on the page. And one of my favorite poems in this book is The Ghost Daughter Speaks, White Elephant. The other one is Glutton. One of the things that's amazing about reading this book is that some of these poems are one word per line. And then you get to these two, and they almost hit you in the face. They take up the whole page. They're intimidating. I love that. Like Before I even read them, I'm like, oh, this is something different. That seems like a language that has developed in the last hundred years to me. Is that accurate? We'll give you a long history here. Getting back to the oral tradition without having books, there's no even possibility of doing this, first of all. And so the famous iambic pentameter line, the 10 syllable line, was really a very practical thing because it was supposedly 10 syllables is the most number of syllables that you can say in one breath, the most naturally. So all the forms that came out of when poems started being on the paper, the sonnet, all these fixed forms eventually started eroding away because we had more and more of the page. And I also remember even when book came out, not everybody had books. <laughs> and so one of the things contemporary poetry starts playing with is what I call the lineation or line breaks. Now our lines can be long and short. The typography can change. Everything is up for grabs because that's what we're experimenting with now. And in a hundred years, it might be something else, but it comes from being liberated from form. But don't be fooled. <laughs> Robert Frost, I think, famously said, free verse is like playing tennis without a net. The contemporary argument against that is what's harder, playing tennis with a net or without a net? <laughs> because how do you know who's keeping score? How do you know if you're winning or losing? Right? There's no net by net. He means the rules of the form. So in some ways, every poem now makes up its own form, its own decision-making process, its own parameters. And so... In the ghost daughter speaks white elephant. Now you could just look at that almost as a painting without even ever reading a word and know that this is going to disturb you because it's disturbing you already visually. Those choices are made. I would say that choice is made in this moment. I have heard her read it. It's amazing. The whole chase of scrambling everything is because the poem is about feeling scrambled, right? So in that sense, that choice is made not willy-nilly, but the form fits function. The other prose poem, what we call a prose poem, is a much more loving, quieter, it's about her son. And so it's almost like a letter. It feels like the tone is different. It's kind of got a more conversational tone to it. And so it's natural to maybe put that in a paragraph form or we'll call the prose paragraph form. And then like that, there's all sorts of things that sometimes they put things justified on the left, sometimes on the right. Yeah, we get to have a lot of fun with all that stuff now, but we don't do it just because we do it because we try to find some reasoning to why this kind of topography fits this poem. Even the line breaks, where we break a line, 
has to make sense overall to what's happening in the poem because what comes at the end of the line sort of is highlighted because of the very special place it has, right? So we don't rhyme necessarily end rhyme anymore, but that's still an important part of the craft, the line break itself. <laughs> so I'm getting a whole MFA <laughs> course here on poetry. That's sort of the fun of the podcast. We've had Carrie Fountain and Maggie Smith on, and I asked them similar questions and you all have different answers, but they're all kind of the same answer, which is like, this is just a way of telling the story that we have, that we get to experiment with. And whatever you're trying to communicate in your poem, you can help communicate it on the page. And I feel that way, like with Carrie Fountain and with Maggie Smith's work, I really, maybe it's because I've never seen them read in a performance context, but I really feel like their work is very at home on the page. And I feel like your work also is really at home, but hearing you read it is a different experience. And I can see you reading it while I'm reading it. It just feels like it wants to be spoken out loud. Part of that might be because my introduction to you, actually the only two times in my life I've ever seen you in person, you've been reading poems, which was watching you on TV in the inauguration and when we met at the Miami Book Fair. I think you're right. I think some poets pay more attention to sound than others. Sometimes I write lines purely because I fall in love with how these words sound together. And actually, when I'm drafting poems, at a certain point, I will read them out loud. And it's a way of editing because if my mouth trips up, that means something is not right in my body. This language is not coming out of my body in the way that I want it to. And so I'll edit with sound in mind, including the inaugural poem <laughs> I've memorized and read like, 80 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure on that gig, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I actually felt like in blood, there were some parts that I think were deliberately kind of difficult to say that there's two sounds, right? There's the sound when you speak it and you hear it. And there's the sound in your mind when you read it. And I feel like one of the things that Rachel McGibbons did really wonderfully in here is play with that there were some things I was sort of sub vocalizing them, and I couldn't quite say them. And they read perfectly on the page. But it's because the thoughts were just jumbled up. I think that's what I really liked about The Ghost Daughter Speaks White Elephant is that it sounds beautiful, but it also is confusing to read. And it's because the poem is confusing and because the author is confused. Right, right, right. And want to, in a way, feel the same emotion, of, you know, through your eyes and as you're reading. Yeah. And it's interesting. You can also jump around in different spaces and then it might mean a little something different, like depending how you read. <laughs> and then that amazing footnote at the end, right? Then all this white space at the end, the footnote about cray, where the word cray cray comes from, <laughs> which is just like, all right, I just gave you all this. And then I'm going to take a whole blank page to let you rest for a minute. <laughs> and then put this footnote in very plain clinical language. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> I've been reading a lot for my own book about Gutenberg. One of the things that he thought about a lot when he started printing his Bible was how things looked on the page and how they made you feel when they looked a certain way on the page. And the size of the paper and the size of the columns in the Bible are golden sections and everything is mathematically correct. And there's something about this book that plays with that too, where I didn't even think of that. This poem ends in this really intense way that says that bitch is cray. <laughs> and yeah, blank space. Here, I'll read it. Twin brothers, Ronald Ronnie Cray and Reginald Reggie Cray were notorious gangsters in London's East End during the 1950s and 60s. Ronnie was rumored to have suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and was later judged to be criminally insane and spent 30 years in a secured mental hospital. So that's the end of the poem. But it's like where the word cray cray comes from. Right? Yeah. 
where the word cray cray comes from. You get this little history lesson there too. <laughs> this history of the word. I mean, she does play a lot with typography, and but like I said, even just looking at a poem already gives you an impression of somewhat what the poem's gonna feel like. Even the length of it, right? If you see like a short poem, you're like, oh, okay, this is gonna be a little moment, right? Before you even free read the first word, right? A little moment with a really big punch at the end, right? If you read a long poem with short lines, you know you're going to be like pushed around a lot. There's going to be long, short lines, the jaggedness of it. You already can sort of sense what that poem's content would be. So it's interesting. <laughs> I love poetry. Every time we have a poet on, I'm very happy because I've become acquainted with modern poetry through doing this show. I would have said that my favorite poem was Binzy Poplars by Gerard Manley Hopkins a year ago. And it's a great poem and he's an amazing poet, but I didn't know the poetry had evolved in the last 150 years to my detriment, but now I do. So it's pretty awesome. We're going to talk about some cray cray poetry next week with inaugural poet and occasional poet and civil engineer Richard Blanco when we come back. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and Santiago Ramones, who does all the editing and is really great at it. He has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is really good too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. The inaugural poem <laughs> I memorized and read like 80 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure on that gig, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, plus there's another 40 million on TV, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, right, right. I should be specific. 1.1 million in person, but 40 million total watching live. Yeah. Which is scary enough, but yeah. <laughs> hey, now you know how baseball players feel. <laughs> <laughs>